Let's, let's praise God by praying right now. Holy Spirit, we want to acknowledge our dependence on you and your work here today. We want to acknowledge our lack of ability, my lack of ability to communicate your word in a way that will connect, and our everyone here, our ability to, to hear and receive in a way that that brings your word deep down into our hearts. Lord, we can't do this apart from you. So Holy Spirit, would you be here, please? Would you work? And I'm praying, Lord, that the result of of this work here today would be our obedience to Psalm 150, our joyful, glad response to this call to praise you with everything that we've got. Lord, you deserve all honor and all glory. You, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are glorious in a way that all of eternity will never drain dry. So would you help us, Lord, to know that, to respond to that. We're depending on you, Lord, here this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake among the nations. Amen. Please have a seat. Well, last Sunday, we started a mini-series within a series. Um, we were working through the Psalms. We've been doing this about every second summer. Um, and we are not going through the Psalms in a particular order, which is why we're not finished, but we're at 150 here today. But last week, we started a mini-series within this series on the topic of worship. And we started last week with Psalm 33, where we saw that worship involves... Now, just so you, just to clarify, what I, this is not a complete definition. This is just some things that it involves. Worship involves a whole life directed towards honoring the Lord, and Psalm thirty three shows showed us that worship involves a, f- a few expressions of worship. It involves fear, awe, waiting, trusting, hoping, obeying. Those are all ways that a life of worship expresses itself in worship to the Lord. And that's not a complete list. We're going to see more in the weeks ahead. Because worship is our whole life, the ways that we express worship are, are many. But Psalm 33 showed us that one of the key ways that the gathered people of God worship him is through loud, vocal, musical praise. That's what Psalm 33 talked about. And the sense you get from Psalm 33, the sense you get is that this singing of praise to God by the gathered people, it's not just one way of worshiping him among many that you could kind of swap out for any other expression of worship. The sense you get is that worshiping God together through song is a particularly appropriate and fitting way of praising him. And I'd suggest that, that the rest of the Bible bears this out. When we see God's greatness, singing together is, is just one of the best ways that we can respond to that. We see this in the history of Israel. Time and time again, after God delivers his people from their enemies, what do they do? They sing. And Exodus 15, Judges 5, 1 Samuel 18, 2 Samuel 22, 
That's just what they do. Psalm 96 says that when God comes to judge the earth, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Isaiah 35 talks about the final salvation of God's people and and his final redemption. And it tells us that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And then a few verses down in Isaiah 35, verse 10, it says, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. This is God's people being gathered together with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In Revelation 5, after Christ, the Lamb who is slain, takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, the one surrounding the throne sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. And twice more, the book of Revelation mentions the gathered, redeemed people singing. Not to mention the many times it talks about loud voices crying out to praise, in praise to God. So you get the sense from all this that praising God together with song is an especially appropriate way of of responding to him in worship. It's not the only way that we worship God, right? So we, we, at times the church is needed to really say worship is not just singing. And, and, and we know that worship is our whole life. We've worshiped him this morning as we've prayed together, as we've sat in silence together. You worship him when you give financially. Um, and me, I, I'm not sure if you got instructions on how to do that, but it's in your bulletin. I just remembered. Um, but we, we worship him in that way. We're worshiping him right now as his word is preached, and as we receive it with faith. It's an incredibly important way to worship the Lord. But there's a reason that when this message is done, we're going to respond with the song. And so as I was trying to think about how to capture this this week, the picture that came to my mind is like, if a life of worship is like a big ocean wave, Bad metaphor for Saskatchewan, but go with me here. A big ocean wave, if that's a life of worship, then responding to God in song is like the point at the top of the wave that curls over and crashes all over the beach in white foam. It's, it's, the, it's the crescendo. It's, it's the peak. And that's maybe not a perfect picture. What I'm trying to do here is just capture what Psalm 33 verse 1 meant when it said, Praise befits the upright. Psalm 147 says, It is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. One of the best places that we see this idea, that praise is like the crest of the wave of worship. We see it in Psalm 150, which is the last psalm. And what we need to understand is it's there on purpose. The psalms are not just a random collection. Bible scholars have come to understand that the psalms, as we know them, reach their final form sometime after the exile to Babylon. And we know that because the psalms have psalms about the exile to Babylon, like Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon. Right? So we know in their current form, the psalms were put together after Israel had been exiled. 
And the Psalms are arranged in a way that follow the story of God's people, starting with David, moving into the darkness of exile, and then ending with the hope of promised salvation when God makes all things right. And there's a whole bunch of cool stuff here about how these last Psalms are arranged that I couldn't fit in this morning, but I'm going to put it on the blog on the, on the church website this week. It's just, this is, it's really cool seeing how the Psalms were put together in order on purpose. But there's a reason that the whole book ends with Psalm 150, which just praises God in the most loud, exuberant, full-throated way. Just, I mean, just think about that. Put here on purpose by a people still in exile, still waiting for a king, still waiting for God to end this and keep his promises. The last psalm is not a psalm of lament. The last psalm is not a psalm asking God to save them from their enemies. It's just a crescendo of praise. I mean, what a statement that that God wins. What a statement that God is going to have the last word, not his enemies. Even though the throne was empty, even though the son of David had not returned, God is going to keep his promises and one day there will be no lament, only praise. Right? That's, that's the message of Psalm 150. Understood that way, <clears throat> Psalm 150 is looking forward to the victory of Christ, the son of David, who did save his people from their sins by his death on the cross and will come again to be surrounded, not by enemies, but by the joyful song of his redeemed people. Psalm 150, the last note says, praise wins, God wins. But maybe you're still wondering, why singing? Why songs of of praise? Why does the last song in the Psalter, the Psalms, spend so much time talking about musical instruments? Why music? And what might that have to do with how we use music today? Well, these are questions that we want to look at as we look a little bit closer at Psalm 150, as we zoom in on this crest of the wave of worship. We want to ask some questions of Psalm 150. We want to look through this psalm to see some of the ways that God's people in the, in the Old Covenant used music to praise him. And hopefully by the end, we're going to have just a little bit more of a clearer sense of how we should use music today to praise God. So we're going to move now into into some questions for Psalm 150. The way that Psalm 150 is set up, it's almost like it's designed to answer four questions. The first question, where should God be worshipped? Where should God be praised, right? It begins, Psalm 150 begins, praise the Lord. Well, where? Well, praise God in his sanctuary. That's the temple. God's people here on earth are to worship him in the place that he chose to set his name. Now, we know that through Christ, the people are now the temple, right? So this is one of the things we got to be careful of uh, is, is that we don't, we don't um, take statements about the temple and immediately think it's talking about this church building because it's not. The people, the gathered people are the temple. Everywhere God's people gather, that's where God is and that's where he is to be praised. 
But Psalm 150 shows us that earth is not the only place that God is to be praised. Verse 1 goes on to say, praise him in his mighty heavens. Well, who's, who's going to do that? Who's praising God in the mighty heavens? The angels? And even the, the sense of the heavenly lights, the stars that are shining, they need to praise God too. It's almost as if what, what, what this is saying is that our human worship, it's not enough to give God the glory he deserves. God deserves to be praised everywhere that there are creatures able to praise him. Below and above. Uh, Charles Wesley got this and captured it beautifully in those words we sang earlier. Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given by saints below and saints above. The church in earth and heaven. Every time I sing that line, I think of my mom who's been in heaven for 14 years now and that we're, we're praising him together. God deserves cosmic worship from everywhere in creation. So where should God be worshipped? Everywhere. Heaven and earth. Next question from Psalm 150. Why should God be praised? Now, we spent a lot of time on this answer last week in Psalm 33, most of which was answering this question, most of which was just reasons for God to be praised. Psalm 150, at the end of the Psalms, just gives us a summary. First, we see God's to be praised for what he's done. Verse 2, praise him for his mighty deeds. It's the things he's done and, and, and probably the things also that he's yet to do. Second, God is to be praised not just for what he's done, but for who he is. Praise him, verse 2, according to his excellent greatness. God's surpassing greatness is seen in what he does. But, but we need to know that he himself is surpassingly great. In other words, there is no one who is or can be greater than him. And for that, he should be praised. So we praise him for who he is and we praise him for what he's done. And this truth was fleshed out a lot more last week, what that actually means. Psalm 150 is just summing it up for us. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Third question. How should God be praised? And the answer comes in verses 3 to 5, where we see six statements telling us how to praise God. And most of them have to do with musical instruments. And one of them has to do with dancing. We're told to praise God with wind instruments. Praise him with trumpet sound. That's verse 3. The word there uh, for trumpet is, is shofar. So this is not like a brass trumpet. This is like a ram's horn. Verse 4 says to praise God with the pipe. That word could be talking about a flute or actually any number of, of wind instruments. So God's people are to praise him with wind instruments. We're to praise him with string instruments. Verse 3, praise him with lute and harp. Small and large, harp-like instruments. Verse 4, praise him with strings. God's people are to praise him with percussion instruments. Verse 4 talks about a tambourine. And, and the ancient Hebrew tambourines are a little different from our modern ones. They're basically just a shallow drum that someone would hold in one hand and play with the other hand. And then verse 5 says to praise God with sounding cymbals and loud clashing cymbals. There are some churches who teach that drums 
are inherently sinful and should never be used to praise God. And I don't think God agrees with that position. God is to be praised with a variety of instruments, including percussion instruments. Finally, God is to be praised, verse 4, with dance. Now this is a tough one for us to wrap our heads around because we're Baptists. (laughs) But what we need to understand is that dancing in ancient Jewish culture is very different from the many examples of dancing that we see in our culture today. We're used to seeing couples dancing, which is not necessarily bad if it's if it's not. Um, um, we're used to bar and nightclub dancing. Um, we're used to pr- performative dancing, where people are using dance to perform, and and the rest watch. Which again is not that that's not necessarily bad, but it's just not what this is talking about. We might even see the overtly religious dancing in certain cultures. The dancing referred to here (coughs) is more akin to what we might know as folk dancing, where a whole group gathers in a circle from young to old, and they're all dancing together to celebrate something good that had happened. You've probably seen this kind of thing in movies. Some of you maybe have, have experienced it in different cultures around the world where this type of dancing is still alive. European culture, for example, you very much see this, and the whole community gets in there. Maybe some of us might here have grandparents who still remember a time when the community would gather in a barn and a couple of guys would pull out their fiddles and, and everybody would get in there, and it's innocent and it's joyful and it's for the community. And God is honored by his people joining in and dancing together in celebration and praise before him. Honestly, just like I don't think about dancing a lot. So just, you know, this is not like a a, a pet project of mine, but just studying this this week, it stirred my heart. I would love for us to be able to recover something like this. I have no idea how. I have no idea if it's even possible or what it would even look like. And some of you might be thinking right now, I'll wait till heaven. Thank you very much. Some of us might be grateful that some of us want to wait till heaven, but, but listen, let's at least recognize something here. That this is, again, this is not the type of dancing that, that we might think about. This is a community gathering using their bodies in joyful movement to celebrate together. And God is honored by that. And this is one of the ways that Israel praised God. We see the examples of David doing it. Done properly, this is one of the ways that God is honored. So how should God be praised? Well, with instruments and with dance. That's what Psalm 150 says. Fourth question from Psalm 150, who should God be praised by? Who should God be praised by? So we've seen where should he be praised? Why should he be praised? How should he be praised? Who should praise him? Well, what's the answer? Verse six, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So if you can, you should. That's, that's the idea here. God deserves the worship of everything that is breathing. And I love how this final call of worship here in Psalm 150 has its answer in the victory of Christ. And John's vision in Revelation 5.13, when he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, 
I, I don't know how, how John hears lobsters praising God, but that's what's going on here. Every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. God is to be praised by everything that has breath and one day he will be. One day he will be. So there's some beautiful truth here in Psalm 150. Some strong fuel for our faith in the Lord. This morning, in the context of, 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 a, of, of this mini-series we're doing on worship, we want to ask a key question from all of this. Why music? Why does Psalm 150, this crescendo of praise, spend so much time talking about instruments? Why, why music? Why do we, when we gather as the people of God, sing Why do we do that? Why music? If worship is a response to the truth about God, what does music have to do with that? If praise, remember last week, what is praise? Praise is saying something good about someone. What does a symbol have to do with that? How does a symbol say something good about God? Well, to answer these questions and and to bring Psalm 150 into focus, right? Our goal here is to understand Psalm 150. We want to look here at a number of Bible passages that describe how God's old covenant people of Israel used music in their worship of God. How did they do Psalm 150? So we're going to move through a number of passages, mostly in 1 and 2 Chronicles. I'm going to read them. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. The first one's from 1 Chronicles 13.8. This is David's first attempt to bring the ark up into Jerusalem. What we read in 13.8, 1 Chronicles, David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. Later on, the second time, because remember that, that didn't end well, the second time when they actually brought the ark into Jerusalem, we read, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. That's First Chronicles fifteen sixteen. Later on in, in 1 Chronicles 6, 4, after the ark was established in Jerusalem, David, quote, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. And then we read in chapter 16, verse 5 and 6, that they were to, quote, play harps and lyres. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel the priests were to blow trumpets regularly before the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. When the temple was dedicated, this is 2 Chronicles 5, 12 to 13, we read, quote, all the Levitical singers Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. If you've ever heard one ram's horn, it gives you the shivers. You imagine 120. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. 
And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, quote, here's what they were saying, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. These, these quotes I'm reading are, are a little on the lengthy side, but, but we need to see how they fit together. We've got three more. Second Chronicles 29, after Hezekiah restored temple worship, we read, this is Second Chronicles 29, 25 to 28. He stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres. There's the instruments. According to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through the prophets. And God had told them to do this. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeters, trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. In Nehemiah's day, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt, dedicated to the Lord, and they f- we read that they found, quote, the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. Nehemiah then brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And in Nehemiah 12, 40 to 43, we read, both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and the priests with trumpets and the singers sang with Jezrehiah as their leader and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Do you see a pattern in, in all those passages that we just read as we see how did God's people worship him with instruments? Do you see pa- pa- patterns? I'm sure there's probably a few patterns that we could look at here. But one of the patterns we see is that those instruments they used were always used to accompany singing. Whether that was the singing of the priests or the singing mostly of the people themselves. In fact, this this connection between instruments and the people singing, using words singing, was so strong that 1 Kings 10.12 says that Solomon made lyres and harps for the singers. Or Psalm 71.22 can say, I will sing praises to you with the lyre. Instruments supported singing. Leslie Allen's a Bible scholar, and and, uh, I'm not sure if it's a he or she, but they wrote this about Psalm 150. The role of music in temple worship was to aid the efforts of praising voices. Here, every type of instrument, wind, string, and percussion, is called to perform its distinctive part so that their player's skill may promote and amplify the praise of voice and heart. So the singing of God's people, full of words, words about God, words of thanksgiving, the words we find in the Psalms, and the instruments were the soundtrack to that praise. 
Now, I just used the word soundtrack on purpose because as I was thinking about this, I was realizing that a soundtrack is actually a really helpful way of thinking about what music is doing as we praise God. Okay, so a couple of weeks ago, we were watching a documentary with the kids about fish in the ocean or maybe it was a lake or something. And, and, And the camera was showing us all these different fish and there was music playing and the music was happy music. And what was that telling us? That these are happy fish going about their lives doing normal things and everything's good. And then the camera panned to one fish and the music got kind of dark and minor key. Dun, dun. The music there was telling us something. It was telling us bad fish. It, it was helping us feel something of, of what those other fish would have felt as they see that fish come and they know he's going to eat us. And, and the music helps us feel what's going on there. Now, we still needed the narrator to tell us the facts, right? Music can't convey information. But when music goes along with that information, the music can really help us feel that reality on a deeper level. It can help us respond to that reality with our emotions in a more appropriate way. So as we think about this, I I think it it gets clearer how music can be used to praise God. Because when music is paired with words, music can help us to grasp in our hearts the beauty and the glory of the truth about God. It can help us respond emotionally to God's truth in a better way. This is not talking about using music to just manipulate our feelings or to create emotions out of thin air. I mean, just music can give you the feels, and the feels are not necessarily worship. But when music goes along with words that are full of truth, that music can help us understand that this truth, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's glorious, and it can help us respond to that truth with proper emotion. Mark Futado, another biblical scholar, said this about Psalm 150. God does not simply want us to comprehend the message. He wants us to be moved by it, moved in every aspect of our being. And music has a unique power to move the human spirit. God wants to move us. So he communicates in a way that touches the mind and the body and emotions and the spirit. Music does that. The praise of God is to be exuberant and music is a channel for that exuberance to come to expression. So this is part of, at least part of the answer. Why music? God is praised with music when that music goes along with the thoughtful praise of his people. And that music helps them grasp his greatness and respond to him with the joyful worship he deserves. Now let's try and make this really simple because I know, I know that this has been a, a more of a technical discussion than maybe f- is appropriate for a sermon. I really want to help us understand this because we, we sing every week. It'd be really good for us to know why and what's actually going on. But let's try to just make this really, really simple. Music helps us feel the truth. Music helps us feel the truth. Really, really simple way of putting it. 
Now, there's, there's a lot more we could say. I want to be honest. This message I felt really in over my head with this week. We could, we're probably just scratching the surface. But with what we've seen so far, what we've seen so far from Psalm 150, calling God to be praised with all these instruments, we see all the history of God's people and how they would gather to sing with the instruments. Music is the soundtrack for praise. What can we learn from that for our life together? Knowing that we spend time singing together every week, what can we learn from this? Well, we're going to look briefly at five key lessons, five key takeaways from all of this, lessons for today. We call this section music lessons, but that might traumatize some of you, so we're just going to say lessons for today. First, music should support, not replace, the singing of God's people. Music should support the singing of God's people, not replace the singing of God's people. I mean, that's how Israel used it. But we know the New Testament tells Christians to sing. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God has told us to sing. So if we're going to use instruments, those instruments are to support the singing, not replace the singing. Now, this is important to emphasize. Now, again, what we're talking about here are things that, like, pastors often talk to each other about. I think it's really important for all of you to understand these things. Over the last 200 years, there's been a shift in in Western Christianity. Away from people participating in worship to more and more worship being done like a performance. You can even see this in the way church buildings were constructed over the 1800s. There was a major shift where churches started being built more and more like theaters, opera houses, performing arts centers. I mean, you see this today in churches where the lights in the room out there are really dim or even off. And then the stage is bright and flashy and the band is so loud that nobody can hear themselves sing. And so a lot of people don't even bother. There's even a whole market today for worship tracks where churches can purchase and play these parts from professional recordings so that their band can sound even more slick and polished than they actually are. And you put all this stuff together and what you end up with is something that feels a lot more like a a concert, a performance, instead of a gathering where everybody's involved and everybody's taking part. And it's really sad because biblically we see here instruments are not a replacement for thoughtful worship. Instruments don't push the truth of God out to the sidelines. Instruments are here to su- support the singing of God's people. So let's, let's make this really simple. Here's a way of thinking about it. Every Sunday morning, you guys are the worship team. You're the worship team. You're not here to listen to the band. The band is here to support your singing. Let's not forget that. Second, we should remember that the music we use on Sundays does matter. And it should be excellent. Psalm 33 says, play skillfully on the strings. When Psalm 150 talks about praising God with all these instruments... You don't get the picture that they're all just kind of squeaking and honking away at random and no one can tell what's going on. That's not going to help anybody praise God, right? So 
Some of us, on what we were just talking about, some of us have been in settings where the band distracted us from worshiping God because they were putting on a show and all we could think about was the sweet guitar solo. Okay? But on the other hand, some of us have been in settings where the band has distracted us from worshiping God because they just sound terrible. They haven't practiced. They're making mistakes constantly. Every song's at the wrong speed. It's just, and that's, it's also hard to think about what you're saying and to worship God when that's happening. If instruments are going to help our singing, there needs to be some skill and some excellence. Not so people notice them, but actually so people don't notice them. So they can do their job of supporting our singing. Third, this should be obvious by now, music should be paired with solid biblical words about God. By itself, symbols or a guitar can't tell us about God's mighty deeds. We need words for that. And the music helps us understand those words at an emotional level and to respond to God. Good music without biblical words is like going to a movie that's got a great soundtrack, but the screen is so blurry that you can't see anything. It's like, what's the point? We want to make sure that our music goes together with words that are beautiful and true and reflect God's glory. And that means that we need to be discerning. We need to not just have simple rules such as um, the older a song is, the better. I think there's, that's, that's an idea I've heard. We had a visitor to our church once a few years ago complain that we didn't sing enough of the old hymns. After a morning where we had sang songs that were just packed full of beautiful truth about God. Would it surprise you to hear me say that there's actually some old hymns that when you actually look at the words, they're pretty flaky. And there's loads of newer songs full of God's truth. So we, we don't want to just have simple rules. We want to pay attention to the words. And we want to sing songs where the music and the words together are beautiful, excellent, and draw our attention to the Lord. Fourth, let's remember this is a group experience. Singing together is something we do together. Which means on any given Sunday, odds are the music that we're doing might not totally line up with everybody's preferences. Right? Because think of how many people are in this room today, and that's about how many different sets of musical preferences that we have. Over the last 12 years, I have tried and tried and tried to get my wife to appreciate Petra. <laughs> and it hasn't worked. Some of you right now are thinking, Chris, I'm going to pray for you. And some of you think, I'm going to pray for your wife. <laughs> but seriously, I, I grew up listening to Petra praise. And when it comes to worship music, I love big guitars, big drums. You have no idea how much I'm holding myself back back there this morning. But I do that on purpose because when we come together to sing, we don't just want to think about ourselves. We want to think about what's good for the body. We're, we are a, a multi-generational church congregation here. It's a beautiful thing. We've got all different generations, all different ages, and, and all different preferences, and, and we want to do stuff that's best for most of us. And we want to remember the body when we sing together. Now, fifth, finally, let's remember what this is all about. Let's remember... That as Israel sung 
Psalm 150, all those years, they were singing it in faith. They were singing it in faith. They were singing it believing that God would win, even though they couldn't see it with their eyes. They were believing that lament would fade away, and one day all that would be left is just everything with breath praising the Lord. We can see so much clearer than them today. We can see the son of David come crucified for our sin, risen from the dead, already begun his reign at the Father's right hand, gathering the nations to himself even today. And in churches all over the world, including ours, what are we seeing when we see God's people come together and sing? We're seeing a preview of heaven. People from diverse backgrounds, diverse nations gathering to praise the Lamb of God who has already won and will win. What we do here on Sunday mornings is like those little movie trailers, the little previews for the real thing. This is a preview. This is a trailer for for the worship of heaven when the wave of worship will crest in joyful praise all over the world. So that's why this is not just a, a technical discussion. But man, why don't you just talk to your music people about this? What does this have to do with all of us? Our singing together week by week is such a powerful way that we strengthen each other's faith. As we sing together, we are saying to each other, God wins. Press on, my brother, my sister. See the victory. Taste what it will be like when we're finally all together. And we're going to be practicing that even today. Singing really matters. And so we want to praise the Lord together here on earth for his mighty deeds, his excellent greatness with all the skill we can bring, rehearsing for the day when everything that has breath praises the Lord. So let's take a moment. Let's ask God to help us with this. And then let's practice a little bit together now. Father, Thank you that you're going to win. Thank you that the victory is secure, that Christ is risen from the dead and he's coming back. And we thank you for the chance week by week to see a little preview of his final victory, to see a little preview of the worship of heaven. Would you help us, Lord? Thank you for how you help us and would you help us continue to to do this well and to do this with an awareness of how beautiful and precious this is. Jesus, we pray that you come back soon and that one day our small song will soon be swallowed up into that great song. Amen.